Welcome to the Health Deli, your local stop for a fresh take on community health topics. Come on in, grab a number, and let the guys behind the counter, Mark, Ben, and Mike, tell you about today's specials. Good day. Welcome to the Health Deli. Uh, We are back in the food truck uh, on the road. Uh, shooting another episode in beautiful Canadian Lakes Pharmacy. It really is. This is a, a great small pharmacy. Small Just, small town. It's got everything. It's got greeting cards, candy. Yeah, yeah. It's so, it really is a, a beautiful location. Well, in Canadian in Canadian Lakes, you know, you know, even though it's close to your house, mm-hmm. is a beautiful area for those of you that are looking to get out and go do some I, golfing. I love and, that you had to say even though <laughs> even though it's close to your house. Uh, it's actually well, a beautiful I mean, it, area. It, the, I mean, the neighborhood can't be all that great. <laughs> it's beautiful out here. It really <laughs> no, is. No, they got some world-class golf courses up here mm-hmm. and resorts. And, you know, this is just a beautiful area. Yeah, nice uh, restaurants. There's three restaurants right here in the area that are all excellent. Yeah, all it right. really is nice. Yeah. Well, we're, we're joined here in the truck today uh, with uh, by Andrew. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. And it wouldn't be a trip out north unless we parked the truck in a forest. Oh, wait a minute. That's not in a forest. That sound guy is forest. Say hi, forest. Hi. The jokes are going to get better from here. No, they're not. (laughs) You're right. So, again, we're out here. We're in the north. Uh, I got a great topic uh, that I want to get into in a little bit, talking about uh, mosquitoes and ticks. Sounds Uh, great. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But before we do that... Uh, got anything going on? Yeah, yeah, I'm still working on an episode about uh, continuing our Know Your Numbers series uh, about cholesterol. So um, trying to get an episode around about cholesterol testing. And then I'm also working on one about seasonal affective disorder. So seasonal depression due to... The winter blues. The winter blues, exactly right. right. So um, we, we're trying to get the... the Food truck fired up for that one too, and maybe go on location. So that we'll would, see. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I love I love it when we get out. Yeah. All right. Well, so like I mentioned, I'm going to talk today a little bit about these vector-borne diseases. And when I talk about vectors, I'm essentially just talking about something that carries a disease and transmits it to something else. And the most common vectors that we have uh, that we're worried about are mosquitoes and ticks and humans. Yeah, it just just you. You're one of the the worst. No, you're more of a parasite than a oh, vector. Come on. So, <laughs> and you know, one thing that I've noticed is over the last few years, there really seems in the United States to be this real big awareness or uptick in the reporting of some of these vector-borne diseases. Uptick. I like that one. Uptick. I like that. You know, it's good. Yeah, I didn't even try to do that one. You know, but I'm talking about things like West Nile. You remember West Nile? Oh yeah. What about Zika? Of course. Zika, Frika. Yeah. And, you know, a few years ago here in Michigan, we had problems with um, Eastern equine encephalitis. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've heard of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Yep. And then there's um, obviously Lyme disease. And then one thing that I want to just talk about a little bit, just because it's really kind of crazy, is this Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness, or STARI. I've actually not heard of that. Really? What What about the one I heard about a few years ago? It was really hard to say. It was like chikungunya. Oh, chikungunya. Love me some chikungunya. Yeah, another. Yeah, that's more of yeah, it's more of a tropical disease. It's related to dengue fever. Yes. Yeah. When my wife and I talk about what's your favorite word to say, chikungunya sounds like Mexican. It does. Like a like like a chimichanga. I know, but you don't want it. No, I don't. No, you're right. No. So, Andrew, have you ever heard of this thing, starry? Nope, no clue. So this 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 starry is interesting because um, it's also called alpha gal syndrome. Your number it, one gal? My number one. It's an alpha gal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it occurs, you know, following a, a tick bite. 
And in some cases, it can cause a potentially life-threatening reaction to eating red meat. That is, you know, I've not heard of this. And that is very interesting. So there were a a few cases down by me this past year. And what happens is there's a sugar molecule, this alpha-gal or uh, galactose alpha-1,3-galactose. And it's found in most mammals, including, you know, pork, beef, rabbit, lamb, venison, so forth, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And products made from mammals, including gelatin, cow's milk, and milk products. And I I emphasize gelatin there because that's important from a pharmacist because a lot of those capsules Ah. that drugs come in are gelatin capsules. And there's actually reports that you get some of these life-threatening allergic reactions when you ingest the capsule because people have this tick-associated allergic reaction, the starry reaction to the gelatin. Now, is this a is this an enhancement of this alpha gal, or is this a reduction of the alpha gal? I think it's just that uh, they detect it and you get an allergic reaction to it. So there's something okay. stimulates the your antigenicity system, sure. or having your body recognize this as foreign. And people can get hives, you know, nausea, vomiting, heartburn, indigestion, you know, relatively mild thing. But then you can also get you know shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, drops in blood pressure. Um, and it appears relatively quickly after you eat these things and occurs about two to six hours after you, you know, ingest the meat or dairy products or even these, uh, gelatin containing medications. So, so just to, to take the listeners back, you would contract a tick bite and then some point after that tick bite, you would have this reaction to red meat that you've obviously never had before in your life. Right. And there's no other symptoms that come up before this reaction to the red meat? Well, there can be some other symptoms, you know, of this illness, but that's one of the kind of the long-lasting effects. Sure. Wow. And so I, I just wanted to lead with that, you know, kind of a that teaser. Is, you, you hooked me. You really did. I Any just, treatment of this, do you know? Stop eating red meat. <laughs> that's not going to happen You go me. back to those plant-based meats. You well, can eat more of that jerky. I'm just not going to get bit by a tick. Well, let's talk about your risk here in a little bit. All right. And so I, I do don't want to just focus on this this starry disease. I actually want to uh, you know talk more about Lyme disease. And the reason I want to talk about Lyme disease because probably about seventy percent of all the vector borne diseases that we see in the United States are Lyme disease. Okay. So the vast majority, even though I listed out a bunch of other things, high incidence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the thing I want to you know get across is a tick is not a tick. Okay, there's a lot of different types of ticks that live in different areas and have a different um, you know, likelihood that they're going to carry different diseases. I should have dressed up like that superhero, the tick. You should have. This episode. I You've, didn't know we were going to have video. I wouldn't have yeah. done that. Okay. You want us to cut and so let you go get no, your outfit? please don't. All right. So there are several ticks that are you know, relatively common in the United States. Some of the more common ones are the black-legged tick, the lone star tick, and the American dog tick. Some of the other um, less common but still found ticks are the brown dog tick, groundhog tick, Gulf Coast tick, Rocky Mountain wood tick, soft tick, and western black-legged tick. So that you got all these ticks running around. Okay, And it's important because in different regions of the country, these ticks are generally found in different areas. Okay. And there used to be a relatively defined area that they were, were found in. So, for instance, you know, the black-legged tick used to be predominantly found, you know, in the Gulf Coast region. 
And now we find it pretty much all over the United States, especially east of the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. And this black-legged tick is important because this transmit, okay, grab this one, Borella burgdorferi. Ooh, I like that word. Go ahead and say it. Bore, Borella burgdorferi. Yeah, you're not a microbiologist. Not at all. No. no. And this is important because this is the pathogen that uh, is responsible for Lyme disease. Okay. Okay, so that's you, you know somewhat unique to that tick. Whereas the Lone Star tick, uh, this is mainly found in the eastern United States, but it's more common in the south, Lone Star state, but it's also because on the tick there looks like there's a star on its oh, back. Okay. And this tick um, commonly prevent, uh, transmits uh, the pathogens that are associated with human ehrlichiosis, tularemia, um, Heartland virus disease. This is a cool one. Bourbon virus disease. It that has, sounds has, good. No, it has nothing to do with, you know, the fun bourbon. Uh, uh, I know. I was disappointed. I looked up that one. And the Lone Star Tick also is associated with that starry. Uh, the American Dog Tick uh, is predominantly found west of the Rocky Mountains and um, transmits uh, Rickettsia rickettsii, which is responsible for Rocky Mountain st- Spotted Fever. So, again, the different ticks are associated with different diseases and found in different areas. Now, I've heard of something called a deer tick, um, and I don't know if that's a scientific name. Does, is that one of these ticks? Yeah, the black-legged tick is also referred to as the black-legged deer tick. Okay, so, so those that would be, be similar. Deer tick. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, by presenting all these different types of ticks and stuff like that, it's really important when you go into an area or you're in an area that you know what ticks are there, especially as medical professionals, know what ticks are there and what types of diseases uh, that they're likely to spread. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember when when Lyme disease was really not a concern in Michigan. Um, yeah. There was it was obviously a concern in other areas of the country, but I remember because I'm an outdoorsman, everyone saying, "Ah, there's no Lyme disease here in Michigan." Well, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. And maybe why that is. Okay. Um, you. But the other thing you, you you mentioned being an outdoorsman, it's also important for you know everybody who goes outdoors uh, to be aware of the time of the year. Because different ticks will bite at different times of the year. So there's a lot of things to think about. And you brought up this, this whole thing since we're based in the great state of Michigan. Um, do you know what ticks are most commonly found in Michigan? And so, guys, hang on, let's, let's, ask, let's ask Forrest first since Forrest. he's out there in the trees. Um, I'm going to have to guess that uh, either the dog tick or the uh, black-legged tick would probably be the most common. Okay. So dog leg or uh, dog tick <laughs> or black legged tick. Okay, Andrew. I guess I'd I'd say the the deer tick. Deer tick. Um, I actually have a little bit of um, information on this. So I was doing a bunch of um, landscaping around my house last year, and I was nervous about ticks. So I had my wife check me for ticks, and we found a tick, and I identified it as a dog tick. Um, so I'm going to say dog tick is the most. All right. Based on the N of one. So according to the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, the most common ticks in Michigan are number one, the Lone Star tick. Oh. So it's that uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Really? Yeah. And uh, this the starry, uh, the black legged tick, uh, the one that carries Lyme disease now. Yeah. American dog tick, uh, the groundhog tick, and the brown dog tick. And wow. interesting thing about this brown dog tick. It's different than most of the other ticks, and it's that one of the only ones that actually can survive and breed indoors. Most of the other ticks need to be outside in order to thrive, but this brown dog tick 
can actually, uh, you know, reproduce inside. Yeah, that's a that's a special concern to those who have pets that may bring that um, tick into their home. Well, and that's it. When we talk about going outside and coming back in and checking yourself for ticks, it's important to check not only your skin, but your clothes and your pets as well, because they can, like you mentioned, bring the ticks in and then ticks can still be transmitted to you. Mm-hmm. And so, Mark, you had mentioned before, you know, you know, Lyme disease is becoming more common in the state of Michigan. Yeah, is that really true? Is it is it really more common, or do I just hear about it more? No, it's actually true. And there was a recent report in uh, one of the CDC's publications called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly, or M uh, M M W. That sounds like some some happy reading. Oh yeah, it's it's fascinating. Lots of numbers and stuff like that. And in this publication, uh, it noted that the incidence or the rate of occurrence. More than double of tick-borne diseases more than doubled between 2004 and 2016. Wow! So it went from about 22,000 cases annually to more than 48,000 cases of tick-borne disease annually. And of those, um, just the tick-borne diseases, Lyme disease accounted for over 80 percent. Wow! Of those cases, that is that is scary. And so that's just the disease. Now let's look about. We already know that Lyme disease is carried by that black-legged tick. And we know that uh, there was a report by the Environmental Protection Agency that revealed that the incidence of Lyme disease nearly doubled from 1991 uh, from a reported case of 3.74 cases per 100,000 people uh, to about 7.21 uh, individuals per 100,000 cases um, or people in, in 2018. So huge impact. And that correlated with spread uh, of the uh, deer tick, black-legged deer tick. So there's been a big change, I guess, to where these ticks live? Yeah. To their range? And, and what they're saying is that this is likely due to global warming and climate change. Ah. In fact, you know, you know, depending on the species, you know, there's been some really cool linkages between global warming and uh, tick distribution. And the CDC has a really cool interactive map, and I'm going to ask Andrew... Uh, to post a link to it on our website uh, that has an interactive map that allows you to see the distribution of different types of ticks from 2015 until the most most recent, I think was in uh, t- uh, 2020 or 2021. And you can just see how these ticks have really spread to different areas. So I wonder, so, so I know it's not 100%, but if you're in an area that doesn't have this black-legged tick, you're at a decreased risk of developing Lyme disease. Correct, because the the vector that carries this bacteria, you know, isn't there. But there might not be any place to run and hide. Really? Yeah, because I mentioned, you know, back in the 1940s, the black-legged ticks were most commonly found in the Gulf Coast states, so warm southern states. And there was a study that was done in 2005 doing some climate sustainability model or suitability modeling. And they predicted that because of climate change, there was going to be an overall increase of 213% in the suitable uh, environments or habitats uh, for black-legged ticks by the year 2080. And they predict a northward expansion um, all the way up into Canada. Now, is this maybe because of not a harsh, as harsh of winter that maybe killed them or something? I don't know if it's the harshness of the winter, just the, the growing season or the environment, yeah. but you know, th- they do have certain environments that they need sure. and things are changing. Wow. That is, uh, that's scary. Um, yeah. So let's, um, you know, we, we talked about ticks. We talked about their growing and coming all over the place. Now I want to really get us focused in on Lyme disease a little all bit. Right. Let's do it. What do you guys know about Lyme disease? 
no, it's not a disease of limes, so this is not going to affect your ability to get a margarita. So I know that's what Andrew was thinking. <laughs> yeah. So I know uh, I know I'm scared of Lyme disease, and it's a neurological disorder. It affects movement eventually. It can. Okay. What What do you know about Lyme disease, Andrew? Well, is it is it not actually curable? Like you, once you have it, you always have it. And that's it? not true. Okay. That's, uh, that's so myth. we're we're going to debunk Andrew's myth. And uh, and in, 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 Doxycycline right away, right? Yeah. That's what yeah. I remember. Okay. Stealing thunder. Way to go. Sorry. Next time, read the script. So you, you ask me what I know. That's all yeah. I know. I don't really want to know what you know. <laughs> oh, okay. You mean you want me to read this? No. Oh, okay. Uh, Forrest, do you know anything about Lyme disease? I mean, is a young strapping looking like a dude who maybe goes outside every once in a while? Um, it's definitely something I think about every time I go out hunting or um, anytime I go out for hiking. Uh, the only thing I really know about it is that it makes you allergic to red meat. And um, that is my biggest fear because I'm a picky eater and I got I got to have some meat. Well, and, uh, fortunately, it's a different tick. So that's that Lone Star tick. So you'd be worried about the Lone Star tick. Lyme disease, it does not make you allergic to Lyme. So you're good. <laughs> you can still have the margaritas and stuff like that. That obviously is a concern of mine. But all right. Well, let's uh, again talk a little bit about it. So Lyme disease, as I mentioned several times, um, the primary vector is the black-legged tick. And it's important to know and we'll talk about the life cycle, uh, humans are an incidental host, meaning that humans aren't necessarily for the diseases or for the um, tick's life cycle mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, or for the spread of um, you know, Lyme disease. Uh, and so once it gets into us, it stays there and dies off or, or kills us or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we already mentioned that this is caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, which is a spirally bacteria. And Lyme disease was first described, you know, some of the symptoms even way back in 1764. Uh, and there was this gentleman, John Walker, not Johnny Walker, oh, um, but, but John Walker. And he saw cases um, consistent with Lyme disease on this island, Deer Island, off the coast of Scotland. But it wasn't until 1975 when the full constellation or full extent of all the symptoms in the syndrome was described uh, that we now consider Lyme disease. And this was described... Um, in Connecticut, in the towns of Lyme and Old Lyme, and hence where we get Lyme disease. I never knew that. And that was only in 1975. That wasn't that long ago. No, those were some great years in my world. Right. I celebrated the bicentennial one year after that, a lot of sparklers and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you were, um, yeah, probably earlier in your career. Yeah, late 50s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but even though the disease... Uh, was described in 75, we didn't identify the pathogen until 1980. So again, even more recent. In my lifetime. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so just to give you an idea of what the burden of this disease is, it's estimated that annually about almost 500,000 people in the United States get Lyme disease. And so it's a pretty common condition. Wow, that that really surprises me. I would have thought it would have been not even a tenth of that number. You would have thought 30%. About 30%. Is yeah, what I was thinking. Got it. Yeah. But 500,000 people. I mean, that's I don't know. You don't know 500,000 people? I don't know. Like Grand Rapids, Michigan, how many people? It's not 500,000, I don't think. I think it's I like think. 250 or something. Yeah, I don't know. Um what is it, Andrew? Andrews. It sounds about right for 200 200 I mean, you're talking a lot of people, 500,000. Wow. Yeah. That is, you're making me very nervous right now. Good. I, sh- I should make you nervous. <laughs> and so in order to talk about getting Lyme disease, uh, we have to understand a little bit about the life cycle of the, the tick. 
okay, because there's only certain phases in the life cycle of the tick that it actually will transmit the disease. Okay. Okay. And so average black-legged tick lives for about two to three years. Okay. And their lives start, now I feel like I'm telling a story. It's like, the life of the little tick starts as an egg. So what was the tick's name? Bob. Bob the tick. Bob the tick uh, was laid in the spring. And those eggs hatched, and the tick was hungry. (laughs) Hungry little tick? Yeah. Could be a a child's book. I think I remember that. And these ticks mature into larvae. Okay. And the larvae, you know, these ticks are different sizes, and the larvae are really small. And so these very teeny tiny little ticks only feed on small animals, you know, like mice and squirrels. And these larvae only have one blood meal. So they only really eat once. They hook onto somebody, eat, they, you know, blow up like a balloon, uh, and then they molt and they turn into nymphs. But the important thing about this larval stage is when they do that blood meal, if they feed off an infected host, so like a mouse that has that Borrelia burgdorferi in their system, the tick then becomes infected with that pathogen and carries that in their body. So basically the, the, the pathogen is not like endemic to all ticks. No. It's not like the tick is passing it. They actually have to get that from a host. Correct. And it's been estimated that only about 10 to 40% of the ticks actually carry um, the pathogen that's right associated 30%. with Lyme. About 30%. Yeah. Smack dab in the middle. Right. Good guess. Um, so these you know, larvae, they feed, they molt, and then they kind of hibernate for the cold months. And then in the spring, now they're nymphs. And nothing good comes with a nymph, right? Not that I know of. Yeah, nothing good. And these are the, the pathogens that actually can, can feed off of humans and spread the disease. And so typically we're looking in the, in the spring and early summer uh, when we're looking for the prime uh, season for transmission of Lyme disease. And again, the other thing with these nymphs is now they're a little bit bigger than the larvae, but they're still just pinhead-sized little ticks. So most of the time when you grab a tick off your body, I mean, you're seeing a, a much larger tick. Sure. And those are probably the adult forms, and those you know, generally don't uh, spread the Lyme disease. I did not know that. So you're looking, the, the most dangerous are the tick nymphs, the yes. small ticks. Yes. And you said about the size of a, a pinhead. Pin. Wow. Yeah. So they're very difficult to see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as Forrest brought out, you know, being concerned about going out, black-legged ticks live in wooded and brushy areas. Um, and exposure to ticks might be the greatest, especially along trails. And, you know, that's interesting because, you know, these ticks are going to climb up on a blade of grass or a weed and wait for something to come along and brush against it and, and, and grab it. Uh, they don't jump on you. They're not flyers or anything like that. So you actually have to have that, that contact. And they hang out by trails. Is this because things move there and so they're looking for yeah. Something to grab onto. Yeah, most likely. Now, that doesn't mean you're safe in other places. Sure. You know, sometimes they can be found in more open areas such as yards, um, but, you know, usually near wooded areas. So just be careful when you're out. All right. And usually these ticks, you know, are on the, you know, low-hanging blades of grass. You mean, they're not big things. So it takes them a while to climb up things. So usually when you get them, they're on the lower, th- you know, aspects. So you get them around your ankles and, and so forth. Uh, so again, when we're talking about prevention, you want to make sure that you don't have exposed skin, you know, down low. Okay. Is there any, well, you'll probably get it. Are you going to talk about like repellent or anything? We will. All right. I'm waiting. Yeah. All right. Before we get to that part, let's talk about what happens when these ticks get on you. Okay. 
they feed and they insert their mouth into various parts of the skin. Now, the one thing that's important to know is these nymphs are notoriously slow eaters. Unlike me, where my wife, you know, like I'm done eating before she sits down. Sure. You know, ticks usually feed for about three to five days. Oh, wow. So they have to be on your body for a while. They do. Uh, not only to feed, but also to spread the disease. Um, in order to spread the disease, um, not only does the tick need to be infected, but it needs to be attached for a certain amount of time. And if the tick's infected, it minimally must be attached for 24 to 48 hours to transmit the Lyme disease, the Borrelia burgdorferi. Okay. And we look at the likelihood that you're going to transmit the disease. They've done studies looking how long the tick's attached. And if the tick's attached for less than 24 hours, there's you know, roughly a 0% chance wow. you're going to get infected. At 48 hours, there's a 12% chance. At 72 hours, there's about an 80% chance. And at 96 hours, there's roughly a 95% chance that if that tick was infected, that they are going to transmit the disease to you. So time is, is of the essence. Yes. When these ticks attach, they need to be unattached rather quickly. Within some, of us, some of us just call that removed. Yeah. Well, I like saying unattached. Yeah. So does your wife. <laughs> so in terms of, you know, now we've got this person who's infected. But at that point in time, you're not going to know you're infected right away. Okay, so it takes time for the signs and symptoms to develop. And Lyme disease is broken down into two phases, early disease and late disease. And late disease, or early disease rather, uh, can begin anywhere, you'll start to see symptoms 7 to 30 days after a bite. And some of the first symptoms that you might see are going to be fever, chills, headache, muscle and joint aches, swollen lymph nodes, you know, and so forth. Now, that sounds a lot. Like a lot of other things. It does. I mean, that it, sounds like a flu. That sounds like a COVID. That sounds like... To me, it sounds cold. like Tuesday morning. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's yeah. just fairly nonspecific. However, there is one thing that, you know, we typically think of that I was surprised none of you gentlemen brought up is the bullseye lesion. The bullseye, yep. Yep, the bullseye. So you have a rash that has a red outer circle and a clear uh, inner circle. So it does look like a bullseye. And this occurs in roughly 70 to 80% of individuals that experience Lyme disease. So the symptoms uh, in an individual has, who has been in an area where Lyme disease is present and you get that bullseye lesion, that's pretty diagnostic okay. of having Lyme disease. What about just the bullseye? Let's say I notice on my leg I have the bullseye. Worth getting checked out? It's worth assessing your risk. Okay. And we'll maybe talk about that a little bit as well. Okay. Now I mentioned there's also late disease. And the late disease can occur days to months after the initial bite. So that exposure history can be long gone. You could have been on vacation, you know, in the spring, and you might not show up till fall. So it might take you a while to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And of the individuals who develop late-stage disease, 15 to 40% of patients develop neurological disorders. Uh, And these are referred to as uh, Lyme neuroboreosis. Neuroboreosis. Boreolosis. Say that that neuroborreliosis good job yeah only took me six times not, that's better than normal for you yeah and uh the uh, neurological Lyme disease uh typically begins with nerve pains you know it can start in the back and you know spread down to your legs uh it can present as numbness or weakness or tingling in the lower extremities and some patients also have bell's palsy so like the drooping of the face mm-hmm. um you know so it's it's, it's fairly significant um, additionally, in late phase non-neurologic, just generally, you can see these bullseye lesions appearing in other areas of the body, so spreading. 
Absolutely. Uh, you can also have the development of arthritis. You know, like you mentioned, so the, uh, the bacteria gets into the joints in the synovial fluid. And this usually occurs in about one out of every four um, Lyme disease cases reported to the CDC. Really? I would have thought it was more uh, than, than that because I think that is one of those kind of things that I, that I hear a lot about of those who have Lyme disease is the pain associated with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with this, you know, it's going to be more common among those who don't get adequate treatment for the sure. early phases. And so this is one of those things that occurs long term. And it was actually reported in, you know, first, you know, a lot of kids uh, who had gotten these bug bites and then had this unusual arthritic arthritic uh, condition that was diagnosed years later. Hmm. Um, so uh, additionally, uh, some of the signs and symptoms with late phase disease, um, intermittent pain of the tendons, heart palpitations, dizziness, nerve pain, you know, and so forth. So a lot of different conditions. We already mentioned that diagnosis of Lyme, uh, you look at their history, you know, where they've been, the exposure, does the tick, you know, is it in that area? And then you can do a test uh, to follow up. You can do a Lyme test. And these are available in tests that actually some pharmacies offer. Really? Yep. So now, the, would the Lyme disease test work for late and early um, stages of Lyme I believe disease? It, I believe that it would, as long as that they had circulating antigen around. Sure. Uh, it, it could. However, they're not going to be effective in the early days following infection. Of course. Yeah, so you if you get tested, right. So it might after. take about a week in order for these tests to become positive. Okay. But they are diagnostic for long-term disease. Yeah. Great. And so the tr- treatment, good news, early Lyme disease, treatment's usually pretty effective. Uh, and if these patients are treated early with doxycycline or amoxicillin for you know, over 14 days, most patients are cured. And this is one of those situations, I know that we always talk about don't use doxycycline in kids because it can stain teeth and stuff like that. This is one of those situations where the risks of the disease outweigh the risks of the medication. So we do want to use doxycycline. If an individual has neurologic Lyme disease, we treat for longer periods of time and then even longer um, in individuals that exhibit Lyme arthritis. So even with late-stage disease, it is considered curable? Treatable. Treatable, I got you. Now, there's also this condition called post-treatment Lyme disease, or PTLD. And this occurs in a subset of patients who remain ill six months or more following standard antibiotic treatment. And this is even a crazier uh, kind of disease. Uh, and it results in not only fatigue and musculoskeletal pain, but can also lead to cognitive problems, uh, depression, short-term memory loss, and so forth. Um not really a good idea of why it occurs in some people and not others, but it's important just to make sure that we treat people as quickly as we can. Sounds like prevention and early treatment. Prevention and early treatment. So, and again, you know, related to, you know, prevention in some people that are at high risk and high risk areas, if they have a tick bite that, you know, or a tick that's attached to them, we can give them prophylactic antibiotics. Um, also, we're looking at developing uh, Lyme vaccines uh, to give. Right now, there is not one that's available, but Pfizer Pharmaceuticals is undergoing clinical trials right now uh, with a candidate vaccine, uh, and they're going to enroll 6,000 people, and they hope to submit their data to the um, FDA by uh, 2025. So hopefully that will be there. But the best way to avoid getting Lyme disease is prevention, and one of the best ways to prevent a tick from attaching is wearing long sleeve shirts, long sleeve pants, or long, long-legged pants, and using bug spray. 
And Mark, you're a community pharmacist at heart. I am. I'm sure that you've in, a, in an outdoorsman, a mighty hearty outdoorsman. Yes. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about bug sprays? So you know, the CDC recommends using a problem, uh, products that have DEET, um, uh, which is a product that is very effective at repelling, <clears throat> excuse me, repelling um, ticks and mosquitoes, right? No, it, it doesn't kill them, but it, it repels them. Repels, keeps yep. them away. Um, and that provides one, one application will provide about one to six hours of protection against ticks, uh, depending on how kind of how you apply that. And you have to remember too, when you're outside, a lot of times you're doing physical activities. So you're sweating, so you're rubbing up against things. You may be caught in some rain. Um, so reapplying is very, very, um, um, important, important, right? So, and then when applied to close, um, 20 and 30% DEET, which are, I think, the, are they the most common uh, formulations? That's what I see most is is that 20 to 30%. Um, they were found to be 92% and 86% effective, um, but skin applications were only 75 to 87% effective. So if you can use a barrier like clothing um, that is going to be more effective. Layer it on with the DEET and, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's going to be more effective at preventing ticks from attaching anyway. So if you can wear long pants versus um, shorts, that would be um, much recommended. Exactly. And, Wait, you know, the recommendations are... are you, what's are, that? are you just saying that, that wearing long pants will prevent them from attaching? Like, they'll will they fall off the clothes? It would be less likely, I would say, less likely to attach to your skin, to but your not skin. a 100% thing because they can still get under the well, cuff. And this is why, you know, what the CDC recommends that if you're going outside and you wear long pants, you actually t- tuck the pants in your socks so they don't crawl up there. So Mark, I want to see you start tucking your pants in your socks. So I am very concerned about being bit by a tick. So I actually do that when I am in, I have changed the way I wear my pants. It is not stylish. I'm not going to lie, uh, but I actually do that so that I don't have, um, so I decrease my risk of well, that, and that's great. And so the thing that's recommended is then after you're outside and you have all these clothes, don't just assume that you don't have a tick on you or whatnot, but you need to inspect your clothes and your body once you come in. The one thing that I wanted to bring up, and we talked about DEET concentrations, and that's really important to look at the concentration of DEET in these products. And it's recommended that a um, preparation with concentrations of 30 to 40% DEET might be necessary for adequate protection. Yeah, there's also a, a product that can kill any ticks that might be on clothing. So you can treat uh, clothing and gear with a product called permethrin, um, which would kill any ticks that might have been on the clothing that are kind of waiting to get on your skin. All right. And now, Mark, this is going to be a tough one for you. Okay? okay. So it's recommended that you're outside, you come in, you inspect your clothes, you take them off, and then you get in the shower. A shower? What's yeah, that? Yeah, I know. And it's because studies have shown that showering within two hours after coming indoors uh, reduces your uh, risk of getting Lyme disease and might be uh, effective for other tick-borne diseases as well. That just completely makes sense, right? So you're washing them away before they have the chance. That's perhaps one of the reasons, yeah. And so now it's also important when you're in the shower, don't just sing rubber ducky, uh, but you want to be checking yourself out for these ticks. And these ticks, even though they start on your you know, lower extremities, they'll climb up your body. So places where they tend to hang out are under your arms, in and around the ears, inside your belly button, the back of your knees, in and around, well, you don't have to worry about this one, around the hair, 
um, between your legs and around your waist. So you really got to do a thorough examination. And remember, these are the nymphs. These are the teeny tiny little things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so m- most people will not even see them. Mm-hmm. But if you do find one, it's important to take some tweezers, put it as close to the head of the tick as you can, and then pull it straight out. Okay, don't use cigarettes and fire and stuff like that. Those are old camper wives tales and stuff sure. like that. Not cool. Um, but again, remember these ticks can also ride on your pets and on your clothes. So we have to be very careful what we do with those. And you might want to be taking your clothes off outside. It's a good thing you live out in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just as long as the winery's not open, you're not taking your clothes off in the front yard. I think we're all set to go. Yeah. Uh, but keep the ticks outside. Okay. Uh, that all makes sense. So to kind of sum it up, it looks like the first thing we're going to do is try to repel them, use a deep product, try to keep them away. Um, and then try to cover our skin if at all possible. So longer sleeves, um, pant legs, tuck our pants into our socks, um, shower as soon as possible. Showers are good. Yep. Uh, and then, um, if we notice that bullseye get, get in and get seen because there are some treatments, but you got to jump on it right away. You don't want to. You don't yeah. want to linger. And we'll post some pictures of those bullseye lesions from the CDC on our website so the listeners can uh, see what some of those look like. Um, I thought yeah. you were going to say you are going to post a picture of me taking a shower on our website. No, definitely. <laughs> that definitely, might hurt viewers. Definitely, definitely not going to do that. You know, we like to keep this family friendly. I don't even know what the warning we'd have to put on if that kind of thing happened. I don't know. I'm uh, ready to take my clothes off and burn them, though, right now. Well, before that happens, why don't we just uh, get back in the truck and get the heck out of Canadian Lakes before the police come uh, and uh, get uh, Mark for indecent exposure. All right, sounds good. I'm going to jump in the shower. All right, we'll talk to everybody next time. Thanks for stopping by the Health Deli to sample some of our wares. We're open 24-7 on Facebook and Twitter at The Health Deli or visit thehealthdeli.com to send us a question or find any of our locations. Please come again. We will be regularly stocking the shelves with fresh content and new wellness specials. As always, we want to give a special thank you to Andrew Tingley and the crew at Ferris State University's television and digital media production program. Until next time, so long from the Health Deli, where the topics are tasty, the takes are fresh, and the discussion is free. Oh, also, so did I tell you about the taco joint I went to in San Diego where I had beef tongue? You did. It was awesome. Yep. Awesome. Is that the end of the story? Just that no, you had a beef no. tongue taco? I got, the, uh, Mex- I got tongue at the Mexican joint uh, near us. Nice. Got it two weeks in a row. Got sick both times. Would that be considered red meat? Would you, you know? <gasps> oh my God, I got starry. Actually, yeah. so I said I had one tick, but I was doing this. I had to cut down about an acre of pine. So I was cutting trees all day long on the weekends. That's why you hire people. I bet you I found a dozen ticks on me. All right. I don't think I got lime. Let's do this cholesterol stuff so I can go pump myself full of bacon.